This week on Trek, Mary Kill. Visions, Vedix, villains. Next. Kira is forced to resign. What do you want me to do, Odo? Fight for what you want! Now she's a pawn in a rebel plot. How can you betray your own government? We are all patriots, Commander. But who's really behind this devious plan? Where would the Circle be getting so many weapons? What will the Federation do? We gotta leave. If we withdraw, we'll be giving Bajor and the Wormhole back to them. Next time on Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Trek, Mary, kill. Hi, I'm Brian. Hi, I'm Kristen. Welcome to Trek, Mary, Kill, a Star Trek podcast that has been deputized for the task of determining which episodes across all the series are classics, which are fine, and which ones suck. This week, we're doing part two of Trek's first ever three-parter, The Circle, season two, episode two of Star Trek Deep Space Nine, written by Peter Allen Fields, directed by Corey Allen, who directed The Next Generation's Encounter at Farpoint. Uh, it debuted in syndication October 3rd, 1993, 30 years old. Uh, Memory Alpha says Cisco and Odo work to reveal the real force behind the Circle's coup. Oh, but there's also this whole storyline, Major Kira. She's kind of like on sabbatical. She goes to a monastery uh, to kind of figure things out until she's reassigned. And it turns out she's going to form this romantic relationship, maybe with this man of the cloth, uh, Vedic Burial. Um, I don't know. He did nothing for me, but, uh, no, n- me neither. <laughs> you weren't alone. Uh, yeah. I think they're trying to, this is like some take on like the horny vicar, uh, trope, but it, it wasn't doing it for me. This is our first time doing a multi-part episode. So I think we said everything we needed to, to set up this, uh, this trilogy basically in last week's episode. So you should check that out. The homecoming where Kira rescued this war hero, Lee Nollis. Uh, who could potentially, according to Cisco and Dax, maybe unite the warring factions on Bajor. It's approaching civil war now that they can govern themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, turns out the uh, the Cardassians, though, are behind the, the weapons running, the gun running to the uh, rebels, and they don't know it yet. But uh, Lee Nollis, basically the hero of the, the point of the first episode that we covered, not really relevant in this one. <laughs> no. kind of a background figure yeah he's um, a he's a talk to character in this one yeah he could and, be replaced with a pretty lamp <laughs> and there would be more wattage coming out of that lamp yes. than the performance for sure as we mentioned last week uh yeah. i think it doesn't help that they dress him in gray as well mm-hmm. so they're almost begging for him to be part of the wallpaper you know the the gray walls on team Space nine uh all that said this is the first time we're discussing an episode that features some of the other Bajoran religious figures who are pivotal for the show. I just mentioned Vedic Burial. Vedics are basically cardinals uh, in, in the Bajoran system. Uh, we dealt with the DS9 pilot Emissary, which had the Bajoran Pope, Kai Opaka. Opaka dies in season one, so there's a bit of a power vacuum, and eventually Deep Space Nine will do a Kai election. And then there's Vedic Wynn, played by... Louise Fletcher, the original Nurse Ratched mm-hmm. in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, a movie I have not seen. Um, and she was first introduced in the season one finale of Deep Space Nine in the hands of the prophet. Uh, and Burial also appeared there as well. Um, you said the the horny vicar, the, you know, that's what what's the most modern version? It's Hot Priest, right? From uh, Fleabag. 
Well, that's actually what that is. Yeah, it's like. based on right. Well, <laughs> I'm just what saying call, that's what they call a priest <laughs> in the United Kingdom. <laughs> but I mean, it's it's just same it's thing. Just the, yeah, it's the 21st century update of that. So uh, the middle part of of stories, you know, a lot of trilogies. These are the parts where it can be let down. Um, I don't know. I, I was surprised that there were as many entertaining scenes. Um, this was one of those that I usually we ask, do you remember the first time you saw this episode? But we did all that last week. So, but I had forgotten many scenes from this one. So seeing them again here, it was sort of a nice rediscovery of a lot of those things we'll get into in a minute. Um, any general thoughts, Kristen? No, okay. <laughs> I have no general thoughts whatsoever. <laughs> I think I think we're kind of going to narrow in, drill down a bit on more on Vedic Burial uh, uh-huh. here, though. Philip Anglum is Vedic Burial. He did uh, the Elephant Man on Broadway. Uh, you know, Frank Langella introduced last week, uncredited. He's just doing it for his kids, just doing it for the love of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, he, uh, another Broadway guy, Louise Fletcher. Uh, I assume she did a bunch of Broadway too. She seems like she'd be a good stage actor. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she's only film. Anyway, so you've got a lot of that background going on. It all kind of, what I'm getting at is Vedic Ryle did nothing for you. There was kind no. of like a weird uh, charisma vacuum in this episode from three characters who are supposed to be very charismatic. Yeah. And I thought Just that like, was weird. You know, talking to a bush or something. It was, it was nothing, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> you know, Kira, Nana visitor, her eyes are just so full of life. She's so electric and and very active and aggressive in her scenes. I didn't realize until recently that she's the niece of Sid Charisse. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's, okay. so that's probably why. <laughs> well, she's yeah. I mean, and so she's alive and vibrant and she's her character has a very specific point of view. She's anxious. She's got some angst. She's frustrated. She's playing off of this, this new life that she's in this, you know, trying to figure out what her next steps are and she's just playing against the guy who just like no affect speaking very slowly very plainly yeah and then you've got uh heavily looped louise fletcher going yes child and being kind of like intentionally smarmy and poking at you uh but it kind of doesn't really work and then you've got uh frank langella who's just like i'm going to downplay every line delivery to Mm -hmm. show you how serious i am and how this material will not get the best of me. So you've got a lot of quiet. And then when it is kind of lively and vibrant, it's kind of more silly than anything. So those are the, <laughs> it's kind of the broad strokes. Cause Vedic Burial, believe it or not, Chris becomes like a fan favorite. People really root for what? this relationship. Yes. They oh, root for okay. Kira and Burial to, to be together. I think that just shows the lack of actual romance on Star Trek that, People were applauding or rooting for literally anything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Some specific thoughts from Memory Alpha for this one. Uh, Cisco's baseball is seen on his desk for the first time. I didn't know that happened here. Um, Vedic Bryle's name is actually misspelled in the opening credits. It's mm-hmm. really spelled B-A-R-E-I-L. It's misspelled B-A-R-I-E-L. Um, and the scene when the where the away team is beamed down, to rescue Kira, they're all beamed down at once. Even though in the previous episode, it's stated that a runabout can only beam up two people at one time. Now, I just think yeah. that that's what the, the nerds threw a flag on that. 
But I contend that O'Brien, once they got back to the station, was like, well, that shit's not happening again. Uh, it's been like <laughs> maybe a couple weeks or something yeah it's been a couple okay. weeks at least and and before they beam down cisco's like i'm counting on you to do your like famous transport stuff which is what we talked about last although week. Like- <laughs> maybe the difference is though is that they all have transponders yes they all have their com badges on that could be and so that problem. might be a different yeah. situation because yeah. they were just trying to lock onto any bajoran right and the yes that's right previous one all right. I don't know. They I'm not going to throw a flag on the play for this one, but <laughs> I mean, I I'm noticing it, but there was a lot made about you have to pin the transponder to her. Yeah. So. I think they did a good job of of if they realized they'd stepped in their own limitation. I think they did a good job of working around that. It's not a continuity error. So what I was getting at. Yeah. All right. Cisco calls for instructions to an Admiral Chakoti. Okay, this threw my ass for a loop too. Okay, I was like, I'm sorry, what? Okay. And then he comes on screen. I was like, oh, not the same guy. Yeah, not, not the even same guy. Like, not, not mom, not, not mom, not dad, not uncle, nothing. This is uh, old sad guy who needs to keep his health insurance going, actor. Uh, the This Admiral Chakoti is C-H-E-K-O-T-E-R Chakoti, or Voyager's Chakoti. C-H-A-K-O-T-A-Y. So, and not Native American, nothing like that. So I tried to look into it. Maybe, I uh, yeah, related by marriage or something. <laughs> I think Chakoti might be like a, you know, Eastern Euro- European last name or something. I'm not sure. I don't want to be too wrong about that. Yeah, I anyway, know. I also I mean, just we, like... We all know they didn't do a whole lot of research on Native Americans. That's right. That's right. At all. Like nothing That's about right. it diaspora or anything it obviously a couple it was floating around in their minds a couple just a couple years later they're like that's that sound we like that sound let's use it again (laughs) and then my last uh memory alpha note is cisco goes to talk to general krim who's the head of the bajoran militia which is you know kira serves uh, as part of bajoran militia that's effectively you know the her boss um, and he's there to tell him that, hey, we found out that these Krasari are arming the circle. So that's why they're able to get so many weapons and be a problem for you. Krim is played by actor Gabriel Mott, and he was a finalist for Captain Picard and Commander Sisko. Oh, wow. And then last week in the big windup to you know setting up the episode, I talked about this reviewer, Tim Lynch from the Usenet. I'm just going to read a snippet from his review. In brief... Wow again. After my review of The Homecoming was posted, several people wrote to me to say, if you thought that was good, wait till you see The Circle. My appetite, understandably, was whetted, and I wasn't disappointed. I'm not sure though that I agree with those who wrote me. I think I like The Homecoming a little bit better than I did The Circle, not by more than marginal amounts in either direction, mind you, but I don't think The Circle truly blew The Homecoming away either. It was, however, amazingly good. As with The Homecoming, I felt as though I was watching history unfold in spots. As things slowly built towards the inevitable hmm, revolution on Bajor and threat to the station, there was a real sense of powerlessness to change anything being felt, or I felt it anyway. It was a rare and very welcome feeling for Trek. Then a little bit later, he says, Then, of course, there's the wider issue of what happens to the station. While it's no surprise at all that the Cardassians are involved in trying to get the Federation out, it was at least a mild surprise that they're doing it. Then, of course, is the wider issue of what happens to the station. While it's no surprise at all that the Cardassians are involved in trying to get the Federation out, 
it was at least a little bit of a surprise that they're doing it as completely behind the scenes as they are. And more to the point, all the fifth act scenes about the looming threat to DS9 were beautifully menacing. In particular, the conversation between Cisco and Admiral Chakoti, the prime directive applies Ben, really brought home for me why so many fans get frustrated by said directive. Halfway through the conversation, I realized where it was headed and got very annoyed at the attitude there, just as the filmmakers clearly intended. Beautifully done. All right, let's get into the greats. Great scenes. The first great scene to me is like one of the greatest scenes, I think, maybe in Deep Space Nine, in the history of Deep Space Nine. Odo goes to Kira in her quarters and he's like telling her to fight. You know, you never follow the rules. So why are you just like giving up and not trying to fight to get your position back? And then the whole senior staff parades into the room to say their goodbyes. Dax is Mm -hmm. returning some lotion and uh, Bashir and O'Brien don't really know what to say. Quark brings a drink thinking he's going to have sex with her. (laughs) Thinks that he's going to show up alone. Uh, It's great. And he brings her her favorite bottle of alcohol and then someone it was Odo was like looks like a small portion or whatever and he's like well I didn't expect so many people to be here and Kira's just like is this a joke did you plan this and then I love uh, Alexander Siddig's delivery he's like nobody could have planned this it's like it's just like a comedy you know uh, 1930s kind of screwball comedy thing they're all talking over each other they're all it was the first time that I can remember where it's like, yes, this cast is together. The first season, it was like they're all trying to like figure each other out and get together. And this one had a vibe along the lines of TNG where it's like, oh, they all seem to actually, the, the characters, I don't know about the actors, they'll seem to like each other. And it's very funny. It's very, I'm not even like reading all the funny stuff that's in the scene, but a great Ber- Berman era scene for one, but also a great DS9 scene. Uh, um, slightly before that, there's a scene of Cisco and Frank Langella's character where Cisco is shading him hardcore by comparing him to this windbag delegate back on earth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A wind, a warm wind blows in from Minicoy, which I yeah. think was written just for this episode. And uh, I'll talk about that a little bit later, but, uh, yeah, that, that was nice too. There was something weird about the acting there. It's like, so yeah. Cisco is bullshitting him but in such a way that it should be obvious to Jaro it that should be he's obvious. being bullshitted to. Yes. <laughs> but and Frank Langella's like, yeah. well, Frank Langella is underplaying it so much. It's, it was hard for me to read what his react, what he's actually reacting to. Yeah. Like, is he reacting to the cultural, like not understanding the reference mostly, or is he, he's just like, I need to get through this conversation. So I'm just going to sit here and let him punch himself out and then leave. Um, and then the next great scene I had was Kira is uh, Beryl comes in at the end of that scene, the screwball scene I mentioned. He invites her down to his monastery. Also, that scene ends with her saying, these are my friends. That was the thing, which was very nice. I thought that was yeah. very lovely. The next scene that I have is great is she's down on the planet uh, at the monastery working in the Arboretum, which is Griffith Park, an area I definitely... Yeah. Every time I walk through there, try very hard not to talk about. <laughs> like we're oh at boy. the Bajoran Monastery. Um, they filmed an episode of <laughs> Star Trek: Deep Space Nine here. I don't know if you knew that. That is exactly how I say it, and uh, because that's how it should be said, given all that. But 
she reveals she's always been terrible at art art projects. She was like she like failed finger painting when she was four years old. Which how are they judging that in the in the Bajoran camps? Yeah. Like, did it matter? Yeah. So, so that's how hard she is on herself. She's like, yeah. I was in a camp and I was still the worst. I I was just like Kira, Major Kira. And when I was four years old, uh, I went to a Christian school. And so they were like mm. probably they're probably like uncredited and you know, uncredentialed or whatever. And I got screamed at. Because I would not color in the lines. Wow. And I just remember, I just remember the feeling because it's like, well, why was I doing that? I'm like, it just felt good. Just color however I wanted and do whatever and color as much as I wanted. And then they taught me, quote unquote, how to color with crayons properly, which Mm. is basically, you know, you've got like a picture of a bird and the bird has all the black lines outlining it. And then maybe some inside the feathers a little bit. Their way of teaching was to take a sharpened crayon, use the color to form another boundary within those black lines to like, here's your color box now that you color within. So then you basically interior outline or draw a shape and then you would color that in. And that's how they taught me to color. (laughs) My son's four and his like, so he goes to school, everyone has to have like a master's degree in child development and stuff. And so they were like, actually most kids that age don't really like to color, especially anyone who has any kind of attention issues. So like no one in his class likes to color except one kid. And so like, we know the kids hate coloring, but you know, we're working on it. So it's not even a thing a four-year-old really, most four-year-olds don't really love doing Mm -hmm. because you do have to do it. They like the finger painting and things like that, but the coloring not something they really, really love doing. Feels like work when you're four. <laughs> yeah, you should see the stuff he sends home. There's nothing close to the right color. Sometimes they'd only give him like the right color, and but it's not in the lines. It doesn't, it's just like, he's getting through it. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm just here so I don't get fined. <laughs> yeah, just get through the shift. Yeah, just like the press conference after losing a big game, you're just there so you don't get fined. That's exactly what it's like. You know, the dialogue, the banter is kind of actually snappy if you just kind of read the words. But the Burial guy's giving her nothing. Like a brick wall. Yeah. <laughs> like Ugh. one of the rocks that she's got, she's moved and has made crooked. And like, uh, it's perfect, I guess, if for like a monk or whatever, but that's, you know... You know, pep it up a little. You need to have a twinkle. You need to have a little, you could tell, like, you need to be able to tell the nailed casting of that part is you could tell this is this guy's second life. Oh, you think? That's how you buy that Kira, what their connection is. Like Kira has gone from being a resistance fighter to living her authentic self. And he knows what that's like. She knows that he knows what that's like because he lived that life. But then he went the other path where he like cleaned it up. You know what I mean? Like that's that to me is what would make it work. Him just being this pious guy that's always been, you know, very clear and sober, which is not what the character winds up being. We find out he's got some secrets, but it just seems like he doesn't have to be like a bad boy. But I think why the hot priest works is because, you know, uh, Moriarty plays him with that twinkle of like, yeah, I did some shit. And now this is who I am. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, it's not a very good 
horny priest at all. But it's a great scene to me, and you could disagree, was that she's like, I don't like doing this art stuff because I'm bad at it. And it's not so that helps me. That doesn't help me calm down. And I need to feel useful. And he says, maybe you should try being useless. Mm-hmm. Th- that might be interesting. And I think that's kind of a modern idea in a way, but it's not. It's like a very like, you know, be the rock and let the water flow around you. I think that's actually an abuse image. So never mind. I take that away. <laughs> but, oh. they, but I think it's um, hmm. I think there is some part of like uh, acceptance or or surrender, I think, is maybe the more modern way of phrasing it. But I really like that. And it it does. Nana Visitor is, you know, a great actor who's able to like it does seem like something dawns in her. She never considered that. And that leads us into the next great scene where she's brought into the orb room. It's a oh little creepy. He's a little creepy about this whole whole thing. He's like, yeah. is it time? I want to show you something. And then they go into this orb room and it's really like her reaction to seeing this thing. She's always wanted yeah. to see as a child, one of these sacred orbs and her eyes are watering with tears. And then we get into the actual image, the orb image, her vision. Uh, Yes, her vision, her prophecy, um, or whatever. Yes, and I am dying over this prophecy. By the way, tell me what's the, what's it's what, how's you dying? Well, the end. They're they're naked, and <laughs> she's then having like a sexual fantasy about her religious uh, leader. Yes, <laughs> he comes and... up behind her, and like it's like in a weird zombie way, almost. <laughs> Yeah, but she's she's in the she's in the council of ministers. The council of ministers, yeah, like are all it's, it's, a, it's like everything you expect. Uh, you know, council of ministers. There's you know foreshadowing. There's um, you know, all the normal stuff a prophecy has. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, maybe that guy's the bad guy. Oh boy, and then um, she's naked, <laughs> and and, and in the arms of her, yeah, and vet and Vedequin's like blasphemy, yeah. <laughs> Louise Fletcher, she could be a bad bitch, obviously, when she wants to be. And it was great. She was just like, just serving shame. Word. Yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I, I mean, I, the vision itself, the prophecy, I don't know. I mean, I like seeing that. Uh, yeah, it's, it was whatever. The naked part was like, OK, it was weird. Sex is up. It was weird. Like, he's not to. into it. Or maybe that is him being into it, but she's like really into it. Yeah. And then later, my favorite scene that I put in is later she asks in real life, she asks him, was I in your vision? And then he could have played this so much better, but he's like, no, I I, no. Uh, Why was I in yours? Oh, no, I don't think so. No, 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 never mind. Like he played it way too straight. He could have played it a little bit played that beat a little bit better in my opinion right well he's not cool no comedic timing there none at all uh but the end of that vision the other the part of it that i actually did like was i liked the music i liked the score the violins were putting in work so i thought that (laughs) that really made it work uh best but yeah i mean i didn't put that moment i mean he was just being weird of the whole time he was like like a weird as soon as it became personal between the two of them, like the actor's posture changed. It was weird a, a little bit. It wasn't sexy. Yeah. I just put the awkwardness was funny to me and I don't, yeah. 
and I don't even know if it was on purpose or not. So my guess is he's like, well, I can't, I'm playing a priest and I can't act like I'm actually into it. So I have to act like performatively be surprised or, you know, withdraw from this. Maybe that's what the actor was thinking, but it just comes off as weird on screen. I mean, yeah, this Um, guy has the personality of a gnat. Like she's, (laughs) she's better off just like getting a vibrator or something. Cause this guy, this guy got it in my opinion, but apparently I'm wrong. According to like all the fans. It was the 90s, Kristen. It's all people had. <laughs> they, had they hadn't invented vibrators yet. That's right. <laughs> the the uh, Our knowledge of Bajoran sexual politics was very oh, narrow. Maybe they're anti, yeah. anti-toy, maybe. It's uh, blasphemous or something. <laughs> Next scene I have is Quark goes to Odo. To say it's Bajor is over. It's another one yeah. of those New York is over articles. But I kind of think this is an all timer Deep Space Nine scene, certainly in the annals of the Odo Quark relationship. Um, you know, it's like there's a great line in the scene, which we'll mention later. But at the end of the scene, winds up being, you know, Quark reveals, like, I know the Krasari are arming the rebels. Mm-hmm. That I can tell you. That's, and then, yeah. And then he's been, he's like, been asking questions and people are more likely to tell the barkeep than Odo. Yeah. <laughs> Who's going to throw your ass in jail, like immediately throw your ass in the, in the brig immediately. <laughs> and so Odo says, well, I need you to find out where these weapons are going um, or tell me like who's giving the weapons. Like, I can't do that. I can't reveal my sources. And he's like, well, then I guess you're either going to be, I'm going to deputize you and you're either going to be my deputy or you're going to be a prisoner. And I just, I just like the whole, like, well, I didn't want to have to do this. And Cork's already like, that's not fair. Yeah. (laughs) I would say anything. But Cork's like, it's over. Bajor's over. (laughs) Like it's, it's got, and he's right. Like he's, it's like, they just assassinated the czar and his whole family. You think we ought to get the hell out of here? And Oda's like, ah, it's fine. I'll blow over. Yeah. So civil war, obviously, this provisional government that's taken the place. They can't even agree on it being a real government, you know. So there's definitely this idea of like, well, this isn't like the second episode of Deep Space Nine, which we haven't done yet. But there was a freedom fighter and he's like, I want Bajor for Bajorans. And basically mm-hmm. the idea that we'd invite Starfleet in to help us out and all that stuff is like, no, we got to like figure our shit out and be pure return is a is a phrase that they say later in the episode which is kind of chilling and in, in now today um it's just very scary the nationalism the the parallels i should say but yeah. anyway this cork odo scene is just so funny they're so they're so loose with each other and natural it's a great continuation of the first of the last episode where uh quark gives odo that information and it confuses yeah. odo and Cork's like, you and I are going to be friends. And then here, here Odo is being like, we are. You're going to be my deputy now. He's like, I don't like that. I don't like that yeah. one bit. God damn it. <laughs> and I have one more. Um, I like the scene where Cisco and crew are hatching the plan to rescue uh, Kira after she is kidnapped. Not what? 30 seconds after Cisco uh- walks out of frame. A generous, abort- a generous timing. Abortion. It's like 10 seconds. <laughs> Look, I was trying to be. If like, you stopwatch that, it was it was uh, like six seconds. He literally turns his back. And she's just yeah. grabbed. 
Like, All right, cue kidnappers. <laughs> and that's when we find out that that Frank Langella is uh, the circle. He is the circle. He's not working. Mm-hmm. Not, not in coots. Yeah. He is hoots. And we know that because he sa- he tells us. <laughs> that's right. He says, I am the circle. In case there was any lingering thought. <laughs> and then he all he wants to know is what's Cisco likely to do? And she won't tell him. So he's like, well, I got to break out some Cardassian torture techniques. <laughs> I mean, like, just lie. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Like, well, he's pretty... He's a pretty hot-headed guy, so you're going to be in big trouble, mister. Yeah, I like that scene where they go down some nice 90s action going on in the in the cave set that we've seen so many times. Some nice uh, appropriate stunt work of taking that jump. You jump backwards when you get hit with the phaser. Uh, I always like when they have to tag someone with a comm badge to get a transport signal on them. So they're like, if anyone finds Kira, put this on her. But he's only got one of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that worked. Uh, and then Bashir gets to her. I got to tell you, whenever I'm watching Deep Space Nine, uh, Alexander Siddig and Anna Visitor got together during the run of the show and they had a kid together. And and my wife knows this. And so every time they're in a shot together, she's like, do you think they're checking each other out right now? <laughs> and she also had a crush on Dr. Bashir when she was younger. They're probably she, not so. even in like the uh the in each other's line of sight. Like when <laughs> well, he rescues her, he kind of like yeah, exactly. Wow. Okay. But I just like that every time she's on this he's on the screen, she's both crushing on him, but also being like, uh, I bet that best they must have been so hot together. So. <laughs> <laughs> probably true. Uh, and then uh, one of the coolest uh, angles I can remember of a, of Which, a by the VFX way, set. why she sniffing around this other guy? That's okay. <laughs> I well, mean, she's got yeah. Alexander Siddig is a good enough actor that his natural charisma uh, sublimated by this kind of nerdy guy he's playing. I think good acting. Yeah but- the the <laughs> there's characteristics of Doctor Bashir that are like. Uh, I want to say repulsive, but like they—it's just like ugh, a little red flaggy. But it's—I know it's a char- character, not you know, right? What the actors like in real life. And then I just thought the the shot, the angle that they chose, where it's above and and tilted of the transporter beam taking them—it's like rain's falling on them. It looked really cool. The entire away team was in the one shot being beamed away. I thought that looked cool. It was a great scene. Uh, I had one. I put this in here because it feels like it should be a great scene. You can maybe back me up or dissuade me. Jaro goes to Wynn and asks for her support. So we've got Franklin and Louise Fletcher. And she's like, but I'm from a small order. What would you ever possibly need with me? And, you know, she's she's like playing it coy. Yes. Yes. She's playing little old me. What? Like, well, I don't know. What could I possibly need from you? Yep. And so he's he's getting her. They're forming an alliance so that he can uh, pull off this coup that he'll need to do now that Kira has been rescued and, and the secrets out and all that stuff. Louise Fletcher was interviewed for Starlog magazine in 1995. And she said, I enjoyed working with Frank Langella. I got a very lovely note from Frank saying how much he enjoyed working with me. Just thought I'd put that in there. <laughs> but it, lovely. I, I'm putting it in here because the scene works for the story. But I'm also like, he's underplaying it so much and she's 
I don't feel like she's like quite a character as opposed to like just a sound, like not even a caricature. She's just like, Oh, like, like she just, mm-hmm. she makes one sound and he makes one sound. And then it's like, there's not a character there. There's just two sounds. <laughs> so it's just a weird scene in that it was written better than I think it was performed or acted. That's just my opinion. I think but. if maybe this is a thing, I don't know. Do they rehearse on Star Trek beforehand or no? It depends. Depends on where I, I would assume they rehearse on this one. I don't know if this, this is a situation where these two actors assume they're going to get multiple takes. And so they were going to try to play it a few different ways and see which one was best. Or if they were just like, oh, I don't, I don't care to rehearse or talk this over at all first. That, that's a good point. Right? That could have every And I don't know, Corey Allen. Although, probably I mean, Louise just like, Fletcher at that point had been already doing some television, but it might not have been like this type of television where they're just like, all right, good. We got it. Move on. Yeah. And you know what? There might just be something to the acting style because we've already flagged three moments where it's like. Burial is underplaying or acting, reacting in like a way that's unsettled, but it's supposed to convey a subtlety. He's supposed to be uncomfortable, but attracted to Norris at the same time. You know, here she's supposed to, Vedic Wynn's supposed to be playing little me, right? And then Cisco's supposed to be bullshitting Jaro as much as he's bullshitting Cisco. And it's like, they have to play it kind of big, but not so big that it's just funny. And it just kinds of winds up being flat, I, I guess. I think with yeah. today's microphones and, and lenses, you can play it more like a movie where you don't have to do very much to convey a lot, but I don't know. All right. Best Trek tropes. Why don't you go first? Um, I was wondering, do you, would you, so at the beginning of the episode, I wrote down is the Frank Langella character kind of like the evil slash bad admiral trope? Or like, um, what do you call it? Or they're either like bad, evil, or um, like incompetent. Uh, I, I'll take it. No, uh, I think that works because he's just being like, "I'm doing something you don't like, but I'm following all the regulations." And I thought you would want. Yeah, this. like it's my that seems, it's my decision yeah. to yeah. have Major Kira reassigned and all this. No, I think that's a good. That's a great one. I didn't even think about that. Because he's such a politician, but it's yeah. still, it's in the same, it's in the same mode. Yeah. Uh, I had Odo shape-shifting into an inanimate, into oh, an inanimate object. In this case, it was a sticker, but then he became a rat. He became a rat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But before that happened, I put Cork shooting a shot with Kira with bringing the <laughs> alcohol. I love that uh, you have it as a trope. That's great because yeah. he is trying to screw the whole time. Yeah, the pilot it's a trope yes. for this specific <laughs> show. Um, and I, I love it almost. I, I mean, I haven't seen one where I've been like, oh no, that was too far. <laughs> so it hasn't worn out its welcome yet. So <laughs> I'm into it. Um, I had tagging somebody with the combat to be in the mount but also unable to communicate with Bajor. All the comm lines are jammed. And I just thought, well, I guess in the future where there's subspace communication and, you know, planet to ship communication, just the idea, like if you blocked all the jammed Earth's transmissions, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. it would just be weird. It's a pretty impressive feat of technology, but it also is a good uh, scope setter. So you can understand the scale scope of, the jeopardy of the conflict 
you can't communicate with the planet. That seems mm-hmm. like a big deal. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anything else? Um, before that, uh, I had the um, stalling the bad guy with a tech problem or mechanical issues. So, like, mm. sorry, you're trying to leave, and they're like, "Oh, there's something wrong. You can't go yet." So that um, ostensibly Odo can jump on board as a sticker, and then a rat, and see who's really arming yep. the circle. And so there's no good, Nick's. Those Kardashians. the Kardashians. Just kind of like how, so they're getting all their weapons from the Kasari and the IRA got all their weapons pretty much from the USA and Libya. So a little more parallels between the circle and the IRA, I guess. Yeah. Worst Trek tropes. Well, it's, it's a repeat of the first one from last week. Jake calls Cisco and he says, dad, I'm outside our quarters. Can you come down here for a minute? I really think you should, you know, he's like, what is it, Jake? He's like, I really think you should come down. And then we cut to the scene and there's circle graffiti on there on the door to Cisco's quarters, Mm -hmm. which is basically a repeat of the scene from the last episode, which I think was the act out as well. So that was a little weird. Also, bad job. They show that it was still going on, even though what's his face was, um, rescued was on the station lena nollis was on the station odo had beefed up security right so yeah mm-hmm. it's suggesting like oh there's who can you trust at this point it's more they're, pervasive they're ever, than yeah but it's the same scene right it's like yeah not it's the same <laughs> it's the same setup <laughs> it's like okay uh so i thought that was annoying um I have one more. Uh, red shirts getting killed immediately. They're in gold shirts, though. Yep. But as soon as Cisco said, "All right, send up two security officers to go on the the <laughs> rescue mission," I was like, "Oh, that, oh, at least one of them's dead." That's right. I mean, <laughs> make sure your affairs are in order. Like two guys we haven't even been introduced to and that have no names right now. Yeah, you're you're gone. Yeah. Good luck. You could have you could have built it in. Lee Nollis had his own security detail mm-hmm. and they could, it could have just been one of those. And like Lee falls so far into the background of this one. It's like, he could have had a little relationship, like not a sexual one, but just like a friendship with one of them. And then that guy does yeah. like, he could have done something, but I was surprised that Lee Nollis was not completely useless. He actually did shoot some bad guys. So yeah. Well, that's good, the good one thing him. he said he was good at. Yeah. He was like, yeah, he's nah, like I can actually I shoot one thing. <laughs> I thought the some of the religious Bajoran religious stuff is a little weird, like the third orb thing. And then why are they taking Bashir on the dangerous rescue mission? Like you need the doctor to come with you. Seems like he should stay behind. But yeah, I, I mean, know that like the original series does it, but like McCoy and Bashir are two different people. That's true. That's true. Well, I think in the spirit of who can I take that's expendable. In, in this in this moment cisco's like he doesn't sure see you with me yeah <laughs> he's like i've come to know you and i know that you're not completely obnoxious but at the same time yeah well so brian's up in the shuttle so i need him there yeah <laughs> and dax i love so i'm not going to bring her yeah <laughs> and he gets and then like he gets shot too yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, all right most of its time quality the map painting of Bajor, the 
which was nice. It was lovely. It looked nice. Uh, what I like about watching these on Paramount Plus actually is, I think I've said this before, it's the best version of the standard def 480. Like mm-hmm. you watch, if you watch this on Pluto, it doesn't look as good. If you catch it on Pluto TV, but it looks pretty good there. So I, I will not nice. be doing that, but no. yeah. Uh, and then Admiral Chakoti invoking the prime directive as an excuse for the Federation to get itself out of the conflict. This is an yeah. internal matter. I could have put that under worse Trek trope, but the nineties and like, you know, the United States spent what the seventies and eighties and even the early part of the nineties getting yeah. up in everyone's business. And then the idea that we'd start pulling out of things like mm-hmm. what Somalia took a, a ridiculous amount of bloodshed before the United States even barely. Yeah, there was such a high bar for the United States to clear in like every presidential debate. There'd be like some attack like, well, we shouldn't be the peacekeepers of the world. Like why we have to go in and spend money in all these countries and all that. And um, also, so this is what, 93. So Mm -hmm. you had Desert Storm, which was over pretty quickly. And we just left. So the nobody had a stomach for staying or f- for getting involved in sk- in skirmishes around the world. Yeah, very American mid 90s or almost mid 90s and if you think about it for half a second it's the stupidest order that I can think of in that situation. So let me get this straight. The Cardassians who we've recently established a peace treaty with and I guess maybe as part of that deal pulled out of Bajor, which they occupied for 60 or so years and destroyed an entire culture and planet. That's only just now getting back on its feet. They're fomenting a civil war. And, mm-hmm. and we're going to say a like proxy war. And we're just going to yes. be like, well, looks like it's your problem. And, and Chakoti has the wrong analysis. He goes, we'll deal with the political ramifications later. I'm sorry. There's a massive security threat there. If the Cardassians control the wormhole. That's a huge. Yeah, that and also (laughs) and then um, Cisco brings up, oh, we have to take all the Starfleet equipment out of the station because, yeah, they don't you don't just like leave all your good planes and stuff and all your great weapons and behind. Yeah. So try not to anyway. So I guess being like a political worm because the Federation and Starfleet have committed. Picard says this to Cisco. I'm committed to seeing Bajor become part of the Federation. Well, if you're pulling out at the first sign of trouble, it doesn't sound like much of a commitment to me there. But also, like, Starfleet is more so the peacekeepers of the universe, more or less, than, yeah. So it's like, that kind of is your job. The the (laughs) part of, yeah, that's exactly right. Like, you are supposed to mediate this kind of bullshit. Like, that's literally what you're, like, it's a small scale rebellion right now, but you could just, like, smooth shit over pretty quickly. Yep. You know, if Deep Space Nine is so important, why isn't the Federation providing more resources to it? Right. They've been at the station for almost a year and it's like there's no other ships around. They don't have like uh-huh. a lot of personnel. You know, there's no diplomats like on board, like any of that stuff. So it's like it's like perfectly pro- modern politics where it's like, yeah, it's important, <laughs> but they're not, not going to spend any extra money on it. And then I actually just I always think we could put it in here the adr especially in the griffith mm-hmm. park scenes it's just yeah i don't know if it destroys the performances there but it doesn't help that's for sure 
Um, I now put her uh, Kira's crocheted long vest. <laughs> I like that. She's wearing like that. She looks like a. I look around this time. I was living in the East Bay, and there was like a fair amount of like quasi hippie moms, and that looks like a woman who was picking her kid up from soccer practice. <laughs> An East Bay mom. What about her haircut? Well, yeah, of course the haircut. Yeah. I thought we already talked about the haircut in oh, yeah. previous episodes. It, it, it looks good. I like it though. It, the short hair. Works. It's a mom haircut. Yeah. But I mean, with that sweater and it, yeah, but she's, yeah, you're right. It is. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, she looks good though, but I'm like, yeah, like mom's the day I get yeah. that haircut, it's over for me. Okay. The day I get the mom cut. Like, I hope it doesn't happen ever, but if it ever does, it's cool. Then you'll know. Yep, you'll yeah. know. It's over. Now it's time for the line must be drawn here. Great lines. Uh, let's see here. There are a lot of great lines, so I won't read them all, but why don't you go first? Okay, so when Quirk is in the, arrives at the stateroom with his two servings of special. I don't know. It looked like, what would you call that? Like an aper- aperitif? <laughs> like a, yeah, like it had a, to be. Um, like a, no, come on. Like a cordial or something. Like a thick syrupy <laughs> alcohol. Like a schnapps almost. Um, yeah, so he's like, oh, I was going to offer a shoulder to cry on. You'd be surprised how often that works on women. <laughs> oh, Quark. Uh, <laughs> and then I have one more... Um, and then later when he's telling Oda, we have to leave, he says, we have to leave. Well, I do. You could just turn into a couch. Oh, it's, a, it's, yeah. it's so great. <laughs> Delivered perfectly. Perfect yeah. t- timing. Oh, it's great. I'm not doing it justice. Like he's like, the shit's going to hit the fan and we got to get out. of. Oh, I guess. Well, you could stay. But... Basically, almost every line in the Kira goodbye scene because even Odo's arguments like they're back and forth there you know like oh you took some smoothing out too and both of them are arguing over who made the other one better at their jobs you know what I mean like all of that is good and then it gets funny mm-hmm. and it gets you know interesting and then Quark comes in that's great and then I really think that the Odo Quark deputy scene just that they're yeah. so on their game they're, every line is really great delivered well but it's <laughs> But uh, before that, I did like this line from Cisco where where this is right as Kira's about to leave. She takes one more look around ops and then Lee says, I don't even know what I'm supposed to do here. How does a nave arc, that's his title, fit into this command structure? And then Cisco overhears and he walks over and he goes, as I understand the position, you report directly to the prophets. But from time to time, I might ask for your help. Like mm-hmm. that line. And then the last two lines... <laughs> I have. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I'll end on the funny one. Uh, so, Minister Jaro in that scene with Vedic Wynn, he says, because she's like, Well, do you want to want me to read your paw? You know, and he goes, I know the future. It belongs to me. I don't need your interpretation. That's a good villain line. Yeah. I know the future. It belongs to me. F- yeah, that's great. But the, the, the line that has me laughing is, like you said, you like the scene where they're gearing up to go save Kira, but they're like, but how do we find where she is? And then perfectly timed, the door opens and Quark walks in and he goes, who needs Odo when you've got his number one deputy? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, he's so sure. <laughs> Uh Actually, one last great line that I forgot to mention. So in the that scene where 
uh, Jaro and Cisco are talking at the beginning, we get the story. Cisco, for a minute, I was thinking to myself, there's a warm wind blowing in from Minikoi. And Jaro says, I'm sorry. And Cisco says, just an old saying where I come from. It all started with the famous ambassador from Minikoi, which is near India, uh, who used to bluster, exaggerate, and dissemble to get what he wanted. Not at all like you or me. He was a bag of hot air and everyone recognized him for what he was. So I'm putting that line in there because I like that little story. It's not, that's not a real saying. I don't think I couldn't find that that's like exists from another story. Yeah, I'm unaware of it. And it's, it doesn't violate my annoyance of when they tried to futurize, you know, like give future jargon as like a new saying. Um, it's actually a nice touch for Star Trek. So this episode was written by Peter Allen Fields, who for my money is like a really underrated television writer for his time. Uh, and I love that this episode didn't waste any lines. Not really. You know, people complain about how stuff today is written for like a second screen experience. I think I saw some Ugh. WGA writers complaining about how like network execs just want something that's made so that it can exist as something people are ignoring while they're on their phones. But the thing is, like people have always television has always been a second screen or been something that gets uh, distracted distraction yeah, especially um daytime television because it was yeah supposed to be on in the background while you're you know doing parenting or cleaning or whatever or folding laundry is like the way i mm -hmm. was taught it's like you you just write it so that people are folding while they're folding laundry that's how they're watching most tv they're also only watching one out of every four episodes even if they're loyal fans with 22 26 yeah episodes. and also that used to be the network note at e was anyone who came in with a show that was like too cerebral they'd be like no <laughs> this, is, this is more background so what's true for deep space nine 1993 is true for strange new worlds and discovery in 2023 it's like there's always com competition for the screen time and you can make the choice of like we're going to make an, a noisy show that every top of every act we're going to restate what's going on because we assume no one's paying attention or we're just going to tell a story and then hope some people are watching or hope it hangs together and that people don't get lost if they miss it or pick it up. Peter Allen Fields died in um, 2019 and Deep Space Nine writer Robert Hewitt Wolf had this Twitter thread about him. Peter Allen Fields was a storyteller and a great one. So what is true about him and what is a story? I certainly don't know. So here are my favorite stories about Pete. Pete lied about his age and joined the Marines at 16 to fight in the Korean War. He fought at Incheon. He was captured and spent several months as a POW. While he was a POW, they fed him rotten fish and maggot-filled rice. He hated sushi, wouldn't touch it. He was released when his captors discovered how young he was. He was sent home, turned 18, was drafted into the army and sent back to Korea. He fought at the Chosen Reservoir. But maybe that's where he was captured? I don't know. When he got back home, Pete went to USC on the GI Bill. He got a law degree. He was a lawyer for strip clubs and card rooms. Hell yeah. <laughs> he wrote, I don't know when it started or whether it was short stories or whatever, but he wrote and wrote well. Somehow he got into TV writing. Now we arrive into what I call, quote, documentable Pete. He cut his teeth on The Man from Uncle. He wrote for McLeod and Six Million Dollar Man. But even here, there are things I can't find proof of. Did he showrun the bionic woman and Mrs. Columbo? Maybe it's not on IMDb. 
At some point, he had a fling with Sophia Loren. He and Robert Vaughn were best buddies. Why not? Hell yeah, again. Yeah. <laughs> this guy sounds anyway, awesome. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, somewhere along the way, Pete decided he lost his way in showbiz. So at the height of his career, he quit. He left TV and became a train conductor. Pete worked the LA to New Orleans overnight trains. It wasn't as much fun as he thought it would be. Eventually, uh-huh. he decided to go back to TV, though he wrote some more episodes at some point. Jake and the Fat Man, Man from Atlantis, Knight Rider. Uh, he, got a, <laughs> he got a gig on Star Trek The Next Generation. That's where I met him. He was there when I pitched a fistful of datas. He was already on DS9 when I got the gig to write Qless. I got hired and he became my mentor and friend. And yet he never really let me in. Maybe he'd seen too much death at a young age. Maybe he didn't trust showbiz friendships. Maybe I was just too much of a snot-nosed punk, but that's how it was. He created Ractagino, Klingon Coffee. Latinum, that was Pete. He was an integral part of the birth of Deep Space Nine. Eventually, Pete and DS9 parted ways. He went on to write for Xena. I tried to stay friends, but it didn't happen. Maybe I should have tried harder. Pete retired to Santa Barbara. He finally found love late in life. Then he lost it when his love passed away. He was mostly alone at the end. Maybe that's how he wanted it, but I wish it weren't so. Now Peter Allen Fields is gone, but he leaves behind his only family. 60 plus episodes of television. Watch some. They're great. So that was great. He also wrote in the pale moonlight, one of probably one of the most, definitely one of the most famous episodes of deep Space nine, which some people consider to be the best episode. That's one where Cisco works with uh, Garrick to create a scenario that gets the Romulans to join the war against the dominion. Um, But great TV writer. And I think his work is all over this one. Wasn't it wild back in the day where you could just switch careers like that? And like not live on the street. What are your like, qualifications for being a train conductor? Well, I wrote well, several I'm a lawyer, albums I'm a of lawyer television. I used to write, uh, yeah, I used to write Star Trek or whatever. Or I used to write Six Million Dollar Man. You're hired. <laughs> you know uh, the bionic out, woman? Turns <laughs> out being a train conductor isn't as romantic as I thought it was going to be. So feel Loren to a pile of coal. Or how are power trains? Amazing. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. All right. The Anton Crudian Award for Best Performance. Is there any question it's an awe visitor as Major Kieran? Um, Sure. I okay. I did not put anything for the last categories because I was very tired and I just was like, eh, I'll figure it out later. <laughs> so I'm fine with that. She's so like in the early in season one, especially like in the I think in Emissary, we highlighted like she's a soap opera actor and she's like really going for it and she's very big. And I think at least in this episode and even in the homecoming, she's playing some really big emotions, but she's like a, she's a real person and Mm -hmm. and it would be very easy for her to come off as big, especially since she's basically going up against like drywood, you know, as her scene partners a lot of the time. And she seems alive, but not like over the top. She's not like, chewing the scenery she just felt very real and grounded and you're just yeah i feel like the it whole fits way. really well with this show mm-hmm. and i think in other shows maybe it would seem like really out of place but yeah. here it works really well uh the honorable mention for me i have to give is the rat playing odo <laughs> look that was a great trained rat yes uh good job nice uh when it was Watching the uh, the Krasari captain and the Cardassian arms dealer talking, or it's like a it's a military person from the Cardassian. It's not like an independent party. It's the military, but they're talking and exchanging the paperwork. 
the th- it really looked like it was skulking around the corner to listen. You, you always want to keep good paperwork on your covert arms deals. That's right. Like a Oliver North situation over here. Uh, for the Shatner, I am going with that Krasari ship captain who I guess had a name, Zefno. But he was the one going like, these delays are unacceptable. You know, it's just like he... He yeah. really had one one gear to play, and he played it. Because there were vo- so many people who were not going for it at all. That's true. That's a great point. That's absolutely true. Uh, I'm giving an honorable mention to Stephen Mott as General Krim. He was he kind of was sassy. He was kind <laughs> of a uh, like an effeteness, or there's just something sassy about him. But kind of not like kind of like I'm doing a performance. You could have withheld <laughs> that information. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I could have been Jean-Luc Picard. Um, so, uh, not not a bad performance. Just like it was like, oh, it was kind of sassy there. All right. What part of this will they teach at Starfleet Academy? Well, some wild interpretations of the prime directive, I guess. I don't know. Like, Yes, this is the area that I was working in, too. The spirit of an order versus the letter of an order. In this case, Admiral Chakoti has ordered Cisco to evacuate the station to safeguard Federation lives. Cisco is evacuating the station, but he is planning to stay and make sure all the equipment goes too. And in that way, he can basically serve as a resistance to the threat offered by the Cardassian powered circle, I guess. So he's, also, he's following the order. He's ordering an evacuation. Yeah. That was the order. Um, but I'm, it feels like such a big decision by the Admiral and, and like, you don't have to consult with anybody else yeah uh, you evacuate know, the station uh let, let them <laughs> blow each other up who cares like was he like the mayor pete of admirals who was just assigned the bajoran sector yeah with the wormhole like a very important part of federation security and interest and it's like well you know admiral chakoti has no actual power right he's just he's just yeah <laughs> He, he recommends you call the airline <laughs> to voice your um, your frustrations, but you're on your own otherwise. I mean, I think Cisco did the exact right thing. Of course he is. He's the hero of the show. But he, someone on the ground having just more information and also being aware of what he has. He has Lee Nollis. In the previous scene, Lee Nollis has just said, well this is another thing I guess I'm going to have to get involved in and I'm ready to do it. Like, you know, Cisco's like, well, I'm not going to leave now when Mr. I'm a weakling, please don't shine a light on me has stepped up. Finally. Can't do that. I got Kira back. I'm at full strength with the the squads back. (laughs) I'm not going to just give up the station. Um, So I I like that. Uh, Could this episode have been hornier and would that have made it better? Um, Okay. So hear me out. They tried and it was bad. And so I'm going to say no and no. See, I just said it was the right amount of horny because it's like, where, okay, they, they need to show that they're both sexually attracted to each other and we see some bare shoulders. But he kind of comes, it's just the way, you know what, he comes up behind her so creepily. So, no, you're. I'm with you. This episode should not have been as horny as it was. Yeah, a rare, <laughs> a rare grade for us. <laughs> but important i guess we could say you know what though but in fairness but maybe these cancel each other out it actually kind of still is the right kind of horny because of quark bringing the drink for just the two of them yeah that's like charming horny okay 
This which one gets, was which gets wiped out by the nerdy, creepy, oh, big time, bad it, horny. It, yeah, yeah it, that's yeah. True. yeah, yeah. So no and no are the answers. <laughs> so then, Trek, marry or kill the circle. You know, it was fine. I think it was. I mean, if it was a three-part episode, like it had stuff actually going on. You know, the dastardly plot was revealed. Yeah, I'll watch next week. I mean, I have no choice, but <laughs> if I did, I'd still watch, I guess. I I liked it a little bit more than you. I had it as opposed to last week. I actually had this in the strong Trek category only. Okay. Not, that's not a category, but I give it a strong Trek. I strongly enjoy okay. Dorsey's one because I really do think that scene with all of them in Kira's quarters and then the Odo Quark deputizing yeah, scene. Yeah, I think it has some good scenes. And yeah, some good, are like, really last week, fantastic. I feel like, we, I, you know what, last week I think that episode because it focuses so much on Lee Nollis, it suffers from that. Yeah. I mean, he's that, that, I mean, we've named four void actor, like, like I'm not actually no three. Cause Louise Fletcher has some charisma and I definitely like her performance in other episodes, but like the three dudes, Brile, uh, East, you know, whoever Franklin Jell is playing again, forgot. And then, uh, yeah. and then, and then Lee Nollis is just like, come on guys. Give us something. <laughs> it's like, nope, no, nope. I it. will not. I refuse. So yeah, it's a, it's a trek from us then. Yeah. A solid trek. That's right. Next week, we're going to get to the exciting conclusion. Part three, the siege Cisco and the rest of the cast have no intention of simply giving up their station, which, you know what? After last week when I was like, Oh, the imperialism, um, I was like, yeah, where do they get off? But now after everything that's going on with Bajoran politics, I'm like, no, that's their station. They put in the work. They should defend mm-hmm. it. Uh, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us five stars right there in your Spotify app too or wherever you, you listen to podcasts. You can also follow us online on Twitter and Instagram at TrekMaryKpod and check out TrekMaryKillPod.com for all of our standings and all of our links. I'll post to the uh, Robert Hewitt Wolf thread on Peter Allen Fields that we referenced earlier. So until next week, TMK out. Bye. Bye.